what is the relationship between uh, our local New Hampshire, New England, uh, indigenous people and the environment and start to kind of move our conversation in that direction. And, and think about this in the context of what are the ways that this relationship between the local indigenous people here in New England and the environment plays out and how it's been nurtured over the millennia. And I, you know, I think about this through, through my experiences as a tribal member that it often emerges in the form of traditional stories that get passed between generations. Of course, many of our tribes have strong um, oral traditions. Um, and and these, these stories are, are maintained by knowledge keepers. And, and I'm thinking particularly of some of the stories that I've been exposed to as, as a young person, but they seem to always encode values. They encode uh, sometimes traditional ecological knowledge as well, but either way, they all kind of tie back to the idea of sustainability. And so um, I wanna at this moment, uh, take a pause for a moment and, and have, uh, have us queue up a video of a traditional story that, that Anne gifted us with. Hello friends. The Abenaki people have lived here in the Northeast for 12,000 years. It's a long time that an oral tradition has passed along stories, generation after generation after generation. The stories carry the beliefs and, and the ideas and the knowledge and the history of the Abenaki people. And part of that the belief system is that this earth that we live on is this is the mother that nourishes all of us and that every creature that is on it has awareness and a purpose and a way to interact with one another. So on Mother Earth, there's the land and the water and there are the rock people and the plant people, the bird people, the animal people, the human beings, the two-legged such as you and I, and the world of spirit. And they're all interacting, interdependent, needing one another, understanding the importance of one another. The stories carry all of that information. There are thousands of Abenaki stories. But the ones that I want to share with you, or one of which I would like to share with you, is from a group of stories about a, a being known as Kluskabi. And depending on which dialect of Abenaki you might be speaking, it could be Guskabi or Gluskap or Kaluskap or Klaskorbe, or further down the coast south of us in Massachusetts, he's known as Moshap. And over the western part of Abenaki territory toward Vermont, he's called Ochiozo, he who shaped himself. And even further out west, where our Anishinaabe cousins are, he's called Manabozo. But Gluskap is a being of such wonder that the stories were also wonderful and they moved and traveled with the Abenaki people and were shared with everyone that they traded with. Now Gluskab, Gluskabi is an amazing being. He's not human. He's also not Tabaldak, the owner creator. It's said that when Tabaldak had made creation and was dusting off the dust that was left over from creation, the dust hit the earth and started to swirl and shape itself, and it shaped a head and a torso, and there's a whole story about eventually he shaped his arms and his legs and became whole and uh, went walking around creation with the Gitchimanitu, the great spirit, the Tabaldak, owner creator, enjoying the beauty of everything. 
Now, because Guscap, Guscabi is one who made himself, he didn't have parents. And so Doubledock gave him a grandmother to help him learn what he needed to know about the world. You know, so he made a lot of mistakes when he was young because he, he had to learn so much as he went along. And, you know, what he had to do with those mistakes is what you have to do, learn from them and do better next time. But I love the stories of when he's very, very young. Um, so I'm going to share one of those with you now. It was a beautiful blue sky day and Gluskabi decided that he was going to go hunting. So he went into the lodge where he lived with his grandmother, Woodchuck. She was busy in there. She had all of her supplies around her, and she was getting ready to be very, very busy that day, making things, mending things. And he said, Grandmother, I'm going to go hunting. And she said, uh -huh. Grandson, good idea. So he took his quiver of arrows and his bow. He left their lodge and headed across the clearing and towards the woods. And he was a very young hunter. He's not terribly experienced, so he made a lot of noise on his way out toward the woods. And the bird people and the animal people heard him, and they hid. So Gluskabi got into the woods and he made his way in for quite a while. He couldn't find anyone to hunt and eventually he came to a large clearing and he was looking around, scanning, trying to find somebody to hunt. And he started to hear laughter. And that's when he realized that the bird people and the animal people knew that he was hunting and they were hiding from him. Well, he was going to have to try something different. So he turned around, went back out of the woods, crossed the clearing, back to the lodge where he went to live when he lived with grandmother woodchuck that stick was back across the doorway saying she was busy in there but he just knocked it to one side went in grandmother grandmother i've been hunting all morning and the bird and animal people they're laughing at me and i need help she looked up from where she was working and grandmother woodchuck said grandson what do you need and he thought about it and he said i need a game bag uh-huh i'm busy here Oh, grandmother, please, I need a game bag. Please make one for me. Well, he kept asking and begging and pleading and wheedling. And finally, she said, oh, grandson. So she looked around and she found a hunk of moose hair and she twined it out and she wove it. She got a good sized piece of fabric and she folded it over and bound it off around the edges, put a strong carrying strap on it, and she gave it to him. And he took it and he looked at it. Oh. <gasps> Oh, grandmother, this is a fine game bag. And then he threw it on the floor of their lodge. But it's not what I had in mind. Make another one for me, grandmother. Grandson, what do you want? I, I don't know, but make another one for me. Make another one. Well, she looked around and she found a big hunk of elk hair. And she spun it out. She twined it and she wove it and she made a big piece of cloth and she folded it over and she bound it off and she put a strong carrying strap on it and she gave it to Guscabi and he took it. Oh, grandmother, this is even stronger and bigger and more finely woven than the first one. What a fine game bag. Then he threw it on the floor of their lodge, but it won't do. Make another for me, grandmother. Grandson, what do you want? I think it should be made of woodchuck hair. Oh, I understand, grandson. And grandmother woodchuck started to pull the fur from her very own belly until she had a little pile of fluff. And she twined it out. She wove it. 
She folded it over and bound it off, put a carrying strap on it, and she gave it to Glasgabi, who was really small. And he took it and he looked at it. Oh, grandmother. Uh-huh. This is exactly what I wanted. Oh, Leone. Thank you, grandmother. And he put the bag on his belt, grabbed his quiver of arrows and his bow, and left the lodge. He knew, because she put her very self into it, that this bag would have power. Well, he went across the clearing, back towards the woods, and then he remembered that the bird and animal people knew he was hunting, and he was going to have to come up with an idea how to trick them. So he got to the very clearing where he'd heard them laugh, and he started to cry. Oh, it's terrible news. The earth is ending. It's just going to fall apart. And my animal friends and my bird friends are just going to fall off. And he looked around. Well, pretty soon the bird and animal people heard him. They said, oh, the world's ending. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? They didn't know. They were panicking and they came running out. They forgot to be afraid of Guskabi. Guskabi, you have to help us. The world is ending. you got to keep us safe. How can you help? And he said, well, I have a game bag here. Yeah, I know it's really small, but it's special. My grandmother made it for me. And I'm going to put it down on the ground and open it up. And all you have to do is get in the bag. And when you're all in there, I will pick it up and I will keep you safe when the world ends. Oh, hey, they all agreed. Guskapi would do that for us. What a good friend you are. And so the snake slithered into that bag and the rabbits hopped in and the deer bound in and the bear lumbered in. The birds flew in and pretty soon every creature in the woodlands was in Guskapi's bag. He looked around to make sure he got everybody. And he bent over, he cinched up that bag and hefted it up on his shoulder and said, Uh-huh, supper time. And he turned around, went out of the woods, back across the clearing to the lodge where he lived with Grandmother Woodchuck. That stick was back across the doorway, saying she was still really busy and didn't want to be disturbed. But he just knocked it to one side, went running on in. Grandmother, Grandmother, you will not believe what I have done. Look, 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 look. And he put the game back down on the floor and there are like little things pushing out the sides of the bag. And she looked at it and she looked at him. Grandson, what have you done now? And he, he told her, he told her everything. How he got all the animals and he tricked them and the bird people into the bag. He said, now, whenever we're hungry, all they have to do is just like reach in and grab someone. And I'm never going to have to hunt again. He was so happy. And grandmother looked at him and looked at the bag and she said, uh-huh, grandson. So you say you got all the bird people and all the animal people. You didn't leave anybody behind. He said, no, 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 grandmother. Got them all. I got them all. They're all in there. I'm never going to have to hunt again. And grandmother looked at him and looked at the bag and said, uh-huh, grandson, if you have all of the bird people and the animal people in your bag and there are none left out in the woodlands well what are your children going to eat and what are your children's children going to eat and he hadn't thought about that at all oh 
grandmother. I understand. And he bent over and he cinched the bag tight and he hefted it up and he went stomping out of their lodge, trudging his way across the clearing. And he was partway across and then he remembered that he had tricked the bird people and the animal people and he didn't really want them to know he had tricked them. So he came up with another idea. And when he got into the woods, into the very clearing where he had fooled everyone, he put the bag back down on the ground. He opened it up and he stepped back and he said, it's all right. The world ended, but I put it back together. You can, you can come out now. You can come out. Well, the birds flew out and the bears lumbered out and the deer bound out and the rabbits hopped out, the snakes and slithered out and they all went to their homes. Guscave, what a fine job you did. Whoa, this looks wonderful. But when they looked really closely, they realized that their homes hadn't changed at all. And that's when they knew Guscave had tricked them. So they say that that's why from that day until this, in the time of year when it's time to hunt, if a hunter goes out into the woods, even where no two-legged has ever been before, and takes his game bag and puts it down on the ground and opens it up and steps back. Not one bird or animal from the entire woodlands is going to get into that bag because they remembered what happened so long ago when Gluskabe tricked them. And that's how that story ends, and that's where my story camps. Ho, hey. Thank you so much, um, Anne, for that, uh, for gifting us for that story. I think that's a, a beautiful narrative of the intersecting that happens in so many indigenous stories uh, framed around uh, the theme of sustainability. Um, uh, trickery sometimes seems to pop up a lot in these stories. Uh, honesty, humility, family, community. Um, I especially, as an animal biologist, I'm especially uh, like the fact that animals play such an important role part in so many of our indigenous stories. And I know um, in our Cherokee creation story that there's a whole host of animals and the one that plays the most important role is the most diminutive of all of them, the water beetle. And so um, I think in that story, like in the one that you just shared with us, um, sustainability and respect for the land are kind of central defining elements. And so I think we'll return back to the panelists again with a few questions. And um, I'm going to start uh, with Paul. Um, and I'd like for you to think about and maybe share with us today how you think um, Indigenous knowledge is relevant to the idea of sustainability. Thank you. Uh, indigenous sustainability and living within the natural world of uh, Earth Mother has always been a way of life for us. That concept of us being the caretakers for Mother Earth has never been forgotten. We only take what we actually need and always leave enough of the other life forms to survive as well, because our continued survival depends on their sustainability and survival as, as a, a species. From the beginning of time, paleo our paleo ancestors were hunters, fishermen, gatherers. And their basis of their food ways and survival was based on seasonal changes, uh, established patterns of food ways and other things. The migration of animals and fish were very predictable, as well as the uh, seasonal reoccurrence of 
foods, medicines, plants, tubers, roots, berries, and nuts. For example, in the earliest days of our existence, thousands of years ago, the migration of caribou herds from fall mating locations in the north to spring calving location in the south allowed us to be in place uh, when these herds came by for specific times and places to establish hunting camps. We only harvest the weak or the male adults after mating. Seldom do we ever take females that were in the breeding phases of their lives. The same was true for fishing. Most fish from the earliest times migrated from the, from to and from the uh, fresh waters to salt water. In the course of their migrations, natural restrictions uh, were always in place. Waterfalls and rapids meant that fish species were slowed as their journey upstream occurred. Based on generations of observations, indigenous ancestors of ours, we identified specific locations and migrations of where we could get the most opportunistic locations to fish for them. In many cases, we built weirs of stones and sticks to direct the slow of migration for these fish so we could harvest them more efficiently. In these locations, we often established fishing and fish drying camps. Again, we only took what we could eat fresh or process by smoking and drying. That was until the colonial dam building phase disrupted all of these migrations. Likewise, migratory birds had a distinct pattern of migration and feeding. We often cleared forest spaces to allow the development of food sources such as berries and fruits to attract these birds. One document case in point was the establishment of places for passenger pigeons to feed. This relationship of passenger pigeons and their migration lasted for many generations. Flocks of millions and millions of these birds made up another important predictable food resources. That lasted until colonial overharvesting made them go extinct in the early 1900s. About 2000 years ago, when we started to develop uh, agriculture as a means to supplement our hunting and gathering ways, we often looked at the wetlands, swamps, and, and other floodplains as our gardens. Again, our agricultural practices were sustainable and environmentally sound. We often used waste fish byproducts for fertilizer. The plants that we primarily cultivated were the squash, beans, and corn, all of which worked together successfully. The squash thorny vines protected the other plants from being eaten by animals and also collected water. The beans grew up the corn stalks for support and the three sisters were all happy as one unit. We even figured out how to plant using small stones to absorb solar heat, like a passive solar, to further heat the growing mounds so plant growth would be encouraged. These practices illustrated a true understanding about the environment and sustainability. We often consider what the colonial foodways were like in the uh, Europe in the 1600s. Water, land, and most life forms were the property of the royals. The fact that land ownership was by the royals made agriculture very highly controlled and not for the benefit of the actual farmers. When these colonial farmers came to our lands, they saw unlimited resources with little oversight by those foreign and distant royals. The only thing that they saw was that there was the gift of God given to them the chance to own their own land, to harvest the natural resources as they wanted. To kill a royal deer in Europe would have been a serious offense. But here in Nandakina, the deer, like most other animal food sources, was considered unlimited and beyond the control and ownership of the royals. One case in point was the near extinction of the European beaver in the creation of the North American fur trade. This global trade and uncontrolled harvesting of the American beaver had dire consequences to our long sustainable foodways and created an environment of inter-tribal competition for these resources. 
Beaver ponds started to disappear, as well as aquatic life that it supported. One interesting fact is that in 1957, Helenette Silva wrote a history of the New Hampshire game and fur barriers for the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. The first section of the book illustrated and followed the indigenous practices of our ancestors. As such, it helped establish the concepts of hunting seasons and harvesting limits. So again, we observe the benefits of our indigenous ancestors and us, the continued caretakers of our Earth Mother, for a long-established practice of sustainability and a protection of the environment, the natural world, the waters, the land and air, and we continue to practice and protect ourselves and all other life forms in this way. Thanks, Paul. I mean, you've given us a lot to think about there. I'm sure that uh, the Q&A window is probably uh, firing up right now as we speak. I appreciate all the comments about the, the ties, kind of the Abenaki ways of sustainability with traditional ecological knowledge, uh, food sovereignty. I think that those are all super important points that you touched on. I appreciate you sharing that and capturing that in your comments. Um, I think I'm going to ask a question of Anne um, at this point. So and again, thanks for your, your uh, poignant story of Guscabi and the game bag. So along those same lines, what types of indigenous knowledge about sustainability and stewardship can be found in Abenaki stories and, and even more so in the, in the methods of sharing narratives like that? Well, there are so many different kinds of stories. Now, the story that I told is a very traditional lesson story. And there's a whole body of stories about Guscabi um, that are, I think, very much teach about the interrelationship with the environment. And the Guscabi and the game bag story that I told is one that's very, very well known. And sort of in that, um, that genre of, of Gluscap stories, there's one about, uh, well, there's one where Guscabi defeats the water monster. Water monster is trying to hold and hoard all the water and builds a big dam. And, you know, Guscabi's learning and, and actually is the one who defeats the water monster and releases the water um, so that it can be available for everybody. And, and Guscabi makes mistakes too. There's one where he's young and he gets annoyed because the wind is blowing so hard that it's, it's interfering with his ability to uh, paddle his canoe to go uh, hunting or swimming or fishing or whatever he was going to do that day, but it was in his way. So he asked his grandmother, you know, where does that wind come from? And she told him the wind eagle causes it. So this long story, I'm short, he, he finds this wind eagle, tricks him, binds him up, and leaves him hanging in a crevice in the, in the rocks. And by the time he gets back all, all the way that, back to where the shore was, um, and the wind had stopped and it was hot and he was sweaty and and the waters were starting to kind of like get stale and foam over. And so what he learned was that the wind is very, very important. It's part of this whole water and, and wind cycle, you know, and there's a lesson to learn. Um, there's another where he teaches the people the proper way to harvest um, the sap from the maple trees at one time of the year and very, very hard to, to create the maple syrup, maple sugar, that was the one source of sweetener that the Abenaki had. But in the story, you know, he came across their village and there was nobody working. There was no, nobody in sight. And he heard this strange slurping sound and he found everybody in the village is out, had tapped a maple tree. And at that time, pure maple syrup was coming, flowing from the trees. And so they were just lying there, you know, getting absolutely sugar high and then, you know, sort of just falling asleep from the amount of sugar in their systems and the need 
he taught them that that's not going to be good and how to fix it. And Gluskop did so many things. He was in, he was involved with the changes of the season. He tried to uh, the the winter uh, winter would not leave, and Gluskop tried to defeat winter, and winter would not leave the Northland. So it was, it was snow all the time. And so Gluskabi enlisted aid. He looked for, uh, you know, an ally. He rode on the back of a whale down to the south where Summer lived all the time and brought Summer back. She defended winter and, and only lets winter come back one part of the year. And Summer comes back for a few months every year, you know, to create the change of seasons we have. So these stories were means by which to teach all about seasonal cycles, the relationship between human beings and um, the earth and the waters and how to you know, live in balance with them. Um, and sometimes stories were really, really informal. I mean, I can remember my mother telling me, you know, as we were actually driving down to Massachusetts to visit my grandparents, there's always a long drive. And, and she'd point out in the early spring, see those, see those white flowers there? When nothing else was in blossom yet. She said, that's shad bush. And I, I was like, great, <clears throat> what's shad bush? And she said, oh, well, when that blossoms, that's when the herring are, are swimming up river to spawn. You need to know about that. And then my grandfather every year would take me to this place in Middleborough, Massachusetts, where the, the herring were coming up to spawn. It was a very, actually still a really well-known place. But now I can't drive anywhere in New England in the springtime without remembering my mother and my grandfather and finding out that shad bush is actually also called serviceberry and it's part of our food system too. So, you know, there's just so much to be learned about how to interact with the world. And these stories were told in community. The communities were intimate, you know, our immediate family or our immediate village. But now, nowadays, our communities have expanded. Our, it's not only our families and our immediate communities, but also now it's our state, it's our nation, it's our world. You know, our, we've expanded with immediate communications like the one we're using this evening um, so that we have to take a worldview and really understand that Mother Earth isn't just our little piece of Mother Earth. It is all encompassing and, and she is dependent on us as we are dependent on her. And I think maybe we're a little bit more dependent on her. I'm gonna take good care of it if we wanna still be around. And, and the stories contain, you know, all the pieces that knowledge, but they also contain the, the, the value systems. You know, there's a story that I learned about the doll with no face. It's, it's telling about why cornusk dolls never have facial features. And in the story talks about the spirits, the, the, the corn and the beans and the squash and the spirits of those and how those foods are, in, you know, grown together in interplanting. Um, for companion planting, but also the spirit of the corn wanted to do more and offered part of herself to make these corn husk dolls. But the bottom line of that story is that the doll acted up, it became vain and it stopped doing what it was supposed to do, which was keeping the children safe and telling them stories and teaching them dances and teaching them songs and keeping them occupied while their parents and grandparents got things done. That doll became much more concerned with its appearance than in, than in what it was supposed to be doing. And, you know, so the, the message in that story is that how we are and how we interact with other people and that wider concern is of much more value than how we just appear or try to make ourselves appear or sort of that egocentric perspective. You know, we have to turn out and be a service. 
So, you know, the stories carry not only practical knowledge about how to interact with the world physically, but then also that, that uh, set of value system, you know, what it is that the community understands is important as a community, which is service beyond the needs of self to take into consideration the needs of the, you know, the greater needs, the greater good. I think that's a great way to think about it. And I, I, I kind of boiled this down to a comment you just made a moment ago about the, the stories being the, the platform for wisdom and, and the collective wisdom of the community being rolled into these stories. And you mentioned a practical aspect of a story with the service berry and uh, the herring. And, and we have a similar uh, kind of analog to that uh, in the Cherokee too, where there's a particular spring blooming tree, the red bud, that yeah. blooms at the same time that the sand bass run in the spring. And that's yeah. a special time for, for harvest um, uh, during that time of year. So I appreciate your, your comments on that. And, and of course, I think we all have come to realize that stories resonate with people too. I mean, we, we think of indigenous people and oral traditions being some sort of lesser thing than a written tradition, but for most people, it's the story that resonates more so than maybe just something that we happen to pick up and read. And, and the, the most powerful reading we have really is we, we reconstruct it as a story in our head. So um, again, thanks for sharing that story with us.